You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg joined the Washington Post to discuss the 2020 election in his new book, Trust America's Best Chance. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Bob Costa, a national political reporter at the Washington Post, and welcome back to Washington Post Live. Former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg began 2019. I was covering it there in South Bend as a little-known executive from the industrial Midwest. But by early this year, the Rhodes Scholar from Northern Indiana became one of the party's breakout stars. We all followed that at the Washington Post. In the presidential primary, he had success, won the Iowa caucuses, and built a national following. He then left the race to endorse former Vice President Joe Biden and has since worked closely with the Biden campaign, including in recent weeks helping Senator Kamala Harris prepare for her debate with Vice President Pence, someone um, Mayor Buttigieg knows quite well from his days in Indiana. But we're here today as well to discuss this new book he wrote uh, during the pandemic called Trust, America's Best Chance. And in the book, he argues that trust in institutions and leaders is fading in American life. Mayor Buttigieg, welcome back. Good to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Let's begin there with the issue of trust. The nation is facing a crisis in trust in terms of the upcoming election. What should Democrats do to address that beyond issuing criticism of President Trump to stop questioning the election's integrity? Well, the best thing we can do to make sure Americans trust the election is to make sure that the election is fair. And that's one of the reasons why you've got organizations like Fair Fight, which Stacey Abrams founded, uh, after her experience in Georgia, uh, Democracy Docket and the work that Mark Elias and others are doing legally uh, to make sure that voter suppression efforts are beat back. Uh, at the end of the day, the best way to build up trust is for it to actually be trustworthy. I also think it's gonna be very important to prepare the public, almost to vaccinate the public a little bit uh, in terms of our imagination against what may be a rearguard action to undermine the legitimacy of elections after the fact. After all, the president has already said that an election he doesn't win was by definition unfair, uh, something I, I don't think we've ever seen from a U.S. president and a direct attack on the legit legitimacy of our democracy. And I am concerned knowing that, especially with all the early votes and, and, and vote by mail going on, uh, that in many states we may not have results right away. And, you know, after my experience in Iowa, I, I know how it feels to want election results the day of and not get them. Uh, but we need to prepare the public for the fact that uh, if it takes a couple of days in some states, in some cases, that may well be a sign of people doing their job with integrity, not a sign of anything wrong with the legitimacy of the vote. Mayor Buttigieg, you make a distinction in this book about personal trust, political trust, social trust. Why are all of those important and are all of them at risk? Well, they all fit together. And I think they are all at risk right now. You know, many of these things can be measured. Uh, there's a general social survey that goes back, I think, to the 50s. They, they ask people, uh, do you think most people can be trusted or you can't be too careful? Some version of that question. And we've seen trust plummet over the last 50 years in one another. Same thing when you look at measures of political trust. In, in the 60s, uh, more than three quarters of Americans would say you could trust the government in Washington to do the right thing most of the time. Now that number is in the teens. You look at global surveys of how much countries trust U.S. leadership. You see a, a more recent and swift but, but similarly 
alarming decline. And part of what motivated me to write the book is you know, cooperation is more important than ever in order to deal with the kinds of challenges we face right now. Just look at the pandemic uh, as a, a glaring example, but it's also true when it comes to climate change and a lot of other basic issues in our democracy. Uh, cooperation in turn depends on trust. And when our trust gets hollowed out, everything else starts to fall apart. Mayor, you mentioned the pandemic. A vaccine is being developed. It could be announced in the coming weeks at some level by President Trump. Democrats are highly skeptical, as you know. What should the approach be by you and your party when it comes to vaccines and President Trump's announcement? Well, if a vaccine emerges and is cleared by uh, the FDA and, and goes through the appropriate processes, then Democrats and, and Republicans alike should lead in making sure that uh, Americans get it. But the fact that almost half of Americans report that they uh, would hesitate to get a, a vaccine, even if one came out, uh, it is a, a real danger to our ability to overcome this pandemic. Uh, I think leading by example would be a good way to do it. Uh, you know, right now uh, it's flu season. When I was mayor, I used to uh, bring uh, TV cameras along when I went to get my flu shot, just, just to uh, kind of be a little indication that, it, that it's easy and safe. Uh, and I think we should all, you know, leaders, political leaders, uh, entertainment leaders, anybody with a platform should be the first in line uh, to get that vaccine. Now, the skepticism is around the fact that it's actually going to be delivered because uh, pretty much every time this president says, I'm going to deliver this by a certain date, uh, he's usually lying or unable to keep his promise. We've seen it on everything from, uh, you know, the health care plan that is perpetually two weeks away from being unveiled uh, to infrastructure week to, uh, you know, even this wall. Uh, when, when they set a target, they almost always miss it. But this is one time where uh, I think all of us should be rooting for this administration to succeed, even if we're doubtful uh, about whether they're up to it. You mentioned trust in, in terms of foreign policy. We, we have a question from our audience member, Neil Friedman from Massachusetts. He asks, how would you suggest we go about regaining trust with our allies? So there's good news and bad news here. Uh, uh, we need to quickly regain that trust. In fact, I think globally speaking, restoring of the U.S. is probably going to be job number one of the next president. The bad news is uh, trust is generally built through predictable behavior over long periods of time. That's how you get robust, enduring trust. And it will take a generation to build that kind of trust up. The good news, if you can call it that, is uh, you know, knowing that fact as I was writing this book, I looked for evidence that you can build trust in a hurry. Uh, what are conditions where trust can arise faster than usual? And one really important example is uh, uh, about alliances. It's about the way that the US gained a century's worth of trust in a matter of just a few years during the period of and immediately after World War II. Uh, there was a global crisis, that sense of emergency created a need to cooperate among nations, just as there's a need to cooperate within a military unit that, that brings its members together in a swift amount of time with deep bonds of trust form. And uh, for better or for worse, we're living through many global emergencies right now. Uh, so in, in this crisis, there's an opportunity. If the US were seen to actually authentically be leading uh, in the face of the crisis of public health, also in the face of the mounting climate uh, if the U.S. were seen to be leading on issues like democracy and human rights that are important to us and important to our allies, I think precisely because of the climate of emergency and danger right now, there's an opportunity to earn trust in record time. 
Uh, and then we've got to back that up again with uh, predictable and credible and responsible behavior over long periods of time uh, when it comes to how we treat our allies and the ability to count on them. But Mayor, is there a risk for Democrats in being almost too trustworthy of U.S. allies, traditional U.S. allies? The president has made such a, an emphasis on saying many of our allies are too transactional or not transactional enough that they're, they need to pay more for NATO. Uh, what's the political side of all this as the president has this nationalist message? Well, the president wants the American people to feel like we've been taken advantage of. I think he has a, a, an understanding of the world that kind of reduces America to just another country out there, scrapping for advantage, uh, worried about being taken advantage of. And that makes us so small. Uh, it misses, and this is ironically for Republican leaders, since they're the party most identified with American exceptionalism. But President Trump's view ignores what is exceptional about America, ignores the idea that we are such a, a leader on the world stage. Uh, that it benefits us and the rest of the world uh, when we are authentically playing that role. Uh, look, uh, uh, he's a transactional guy, and so I guess that's what it comes down to. Uh, and look, it, it matters that uh, you know Western European states uh, uh, carry their their weight when it comes to defense spending in the framework of NATO and and such things. Those are important, but uh, to to let that go in front of fundamental commitments to human rights or democracy misses the point. Our values uh, are what underwrite our most important alliances and relationships. Our fidelity to those values is everything. Uh, that is what our credibility is made of. If we're not credible, what country would take a risk to stand by the United States? And we're seeing that, of course, in everything from uh, the way that the U.S. turned its back under this president on uh, our uh, Kurdish allies. Uh, to the ways in which he's gone out of his way to insult longstanding allies here in the West. You've been a mayor, two terms in South Bend, trust in law enforcement. You've seen it up close as a major issue. What have you learned about trust and systemic racism over the past year that perhaps you did not know uh, when, when 2020 began? Well, th this is a huge problem for every mayor, for every city, and, and for our country more broadly. Uh, and I think the, the uh, perspective I tried to take in the book is to make sure we consider how trust works in both directions. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why many Americans of color, especially Black Americans, Black men, uh, are skeptical and suspicious of law enforcement and the criminal justice system more generally that hasn't served up justice. But equally lethal is the fact that trust is not distributed uh, evenly by institutions. Uh, in other words, what, what put, uh, for example, Philando Castile's life in danger, even though he was a lawful uh, licensed uh, firearm owner, uh, was partly the fact that black men are, are regarded with what Brian Stevenson has called a presumption of dangerousness and guilt. And there are many ways to measure how uh, Americans of color and especially black Americans are systematically less trusted by institutions, not just in these life and death scenarios that lead to police violence, but uh, also economically. You know, we, we, one measure of trust is credit reporting and credit scoring. And there's a lot of evidence of, of systematic uh, racial disparate patterns in the way that credit scores are assigned. Um, that winds up having consequences for people for whom trust is a, a life-saving and important resource. And if institutions do a better job, 
of equitably trusting Americans of color, we will see more likelihood of there being a good reason, a trustworthy reason uh, for citizens to trust those institutions back. This is much more of a reciprocal pattern than I think is, is fully understood. And these patterns of discrimination, bias, and inequity work in both directions, uh, always to the disadvantage uh, of the Black community and Americans of color. Mayor Buttigieg, we got another audience question from Deanna Olson of Florida. She asked, what do you see as the biggest challenge for Democrats in this election? And when I read this question last night from our audience member, I was also reading coverage of your recent appearance on Fox News. It's gone viral, uh, you defending uh, your party and Vice President Biden on Fox News. And it brings up the question to me as a reporter of, of what about trust in the Democratic Party? Should your party be doing more to build that trust with Republicans by going on Fox News? I think so. I, I'm a big fan of going to places you wouldn't be expected to appear uh, because we, we can't be uh, upset with uh, the, the, the decisions people make uh, based on the information they get if that information never even included our perspective and we missed a chance to get it out. Uh, look, uh, uh, I think that there are a lot of opinion hosts on Fox who are not uh, really practicing good faith, but I know that there are a lot of viewers who tune in uh, who are watching in good faith. And at least uh, if there's a news program where I have an opportunity to get a perspective out and they're willing to have me, uh, I think that's a conversation we should absolutely have. Uh, one of the biggest tragedies in our moment, I think, is that uh, there are many people who just feel like our party hasn't talked to them. I think it's different this year, though. I think. We've learned a lot of lessons from the past decade and uh, are, are going to take no vote for granted, but also uh, leave no vote on the table. And the more we can go uh, literally to communities that haven't heard from us and into media spaces that haven't heard from us, uh, the better. You know, sometimes it's, it's uh, uh, beyond the, the, the ideological concern. Uh, it, it's a matter of uh, uh, just a, a sense of relationship, a sense of encounter. And we need that in order for people to even, that people need to feel like they know you a little bit, to even hear what you have to say about policy or politics. Mayor Buttigieg, in 2016, candidate Trump used to call into cable networks. Should Vice President Biden be calling into Fox News and others more frequently, along with Senator Harris, to do that kind of engagement that you just spelled out? I mean, look, every candidate has their own campaigning style, right? Uh, uh, obviously, President Trump's a big fan of uh, just calling into shows. Uh, others prefer to, to have more structured encounters with the press. The important thing, I think, is to make sure there's a way uh, for people to see how you respond to questions and how you think. It's one of the reasons it's, it's really disappointing that the president is uh, withdrawing from the proposed town hall style debate. Uh, my understanding is that uh, Vice President Biden is going to do a town hall anyway. It just won't mm -hmm. be a debate. But uh, for Donald Trump to be the first candidate, I think since 1992, to decline the opportunity to be in a debate where you take questions directly from voters. I think that's a huge missed opportunity, certainly for the country. Uh, although maybe he thinks it's, it's strategically wise for him to avoid taking those kinds of questions. Mayor, the nation's most prominent elected Democrat, at least at this time, Speaker Pelosi has announced her support for a commission to look into the president's fitness for office, the 25th Amendment, along with Jamie Raskin of Maryland, a congressman. Do you support that effort? Uh, you know, I'm just seeing the news, so I'm uh, I'm going to learn more about it. But I certainly think that uh, if we can establish a responsible body to uh, just evaluate what's going on, uh, it could, under the right conditions, add to the level of trust. Look, right now, we don't even know why the vice president 
uh, abruptly canceled his travel plans and returned to Washington. We don't know what the consequences are of uh, the president's uh, medical condition. We don't even fully know what his med medical condition is like. Several of the institutions that are supposed to be the most trusted in the world, the White House, the military, and American medicine, uh, are all brought together in these physicians treating the president, yet uh, they've more or less admitted that they haven't been fully uh, transparent or, or uh, fully balanced or straightforward with us. I mean, consider this. We don't know whether the president is still on a course of dexamethasone. That is a psychoactive steroid. He is making decisions, uh, policy uh, uh, pronouncements, uh, a decision to withdraw from negotiations on COVID relief, uh, a tweet that uh, I think uh, shocked a lot of people with uh, what would be good news if true, but we don't know uh, what it actually means when he talked about bringing troops home from Afghanistan that, by the way, could have an effect on, on some pretty uh, sensitive and dynamic military and diplomatic things that are going on in the region. Um, American national security depends on the stability of the president of the United States. And in a normal presidency, if a White House doctor or White House press release said something about the president's condition, we would all believe it. Um, but that trust was squandered a long time ago, and we're going to need other mechanisms to build up confidence. Let's turn to trust in the Supreme Court. Next week, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, a federal judge in Indiana, will have her confirmation hearings on the Senate Judiciary Committee. She's from South Bend. Do you know her? Uh, so I uh, don't know her well, but uh, you know she lives a few blocks away. And ordinarily, I would be happy for uh, South, any occasion that makes South Bend the, the center of the uh, political universe. In this case, I'm, I'm very concerned, uh, not about anything uh, about her personally, uh, but uh, uh, about uh, us personally. Um, uh, two justices on the Supreme Court just made clear that they would open the door to overturning the uh, Obergefell decision that makes marriage equality the law of the land. Uh, that's pretty personal to me. Um, there are a lot of indications that uh, a, a conservative court majority could eliminate health care uh, when the ACA uh, bill comes before the court. That, that's personal for, for a lot of us who have loved ones with pre-existing conditions. So this is a, a really serious moment where a lot of us have a lot on the line. And I hope that those considerations are what dominate uh, our understanding uh, of, of the, the process that's about that. What about the people of praise group? Should that be a focus for Democrats? I mean, uh, uh, you know, I think we, we need to understand uh, where people are coming from when they're going to have a lot of power. Uh, but again, to me, this is uh, much less uh, about anything in, in the uh, kind of uh, a life or, or community or family of, of the proposed Supreme Court justice. Uh, it's about the decisions uh, and the philosophy that will shape uh, all of our lives in very intimate and, and perhaps uh, very abrupt ways. Should Vice President Biden, Mayor, and Senator Harris answer the court packing question? You talk about trust in your book. Is it fair to tell American voters they'll find out after the election uh, they are they're demanding transparency of President Trump, uh, but they're not giving a full and complete answer on court packing. So should they answer the question? Well, here's what's going on. Uh, th there's been a lot of conversation. As you know, I've been part of it, uh, speaking only for myself, uh, have a lot of interest in, in bipartisan structural reforms so that there's not as much of a, an ideological death match every time there's an open court. Uh, but I think the reason Republicans keep raising this is uh, a matter of political strategy, and their political strategy is to get America talking about anything but the immediate issue at hand. And the immediate issue at hand is that this decision, this, this uh, appointment, 
uh, could likely have bearing on whether millions of Americans lose their health care coverage in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, and it, it could also distract from the simple fact that the majority of Americans agree with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris that the winner of this presidential election ought to be the one to pick the next Supreme Court justice. Remember, we're not just talking about an election coming up. But Mayor- We're talking about it underway. I, Millions I, I, of people have already voted. That's one of the reasons I think Americans think it's so important that uh, Americans get to weigh in on this choice. But Mayor, with respect, one of the first things you brought up when I interviewed you a couple of years ago was your, your interest in expanding the Supreme Court, calling for structural reforms, constitutional reforms. It was something you were ready to talk about, happy to talk about. Do you, one, still support the idea of expanding the court? And two, again, why won't Vice President Biden and Senator Harris just answer the question in the same way you have for many years? So my views haven't changed. Uh, I, I also think that uh, uh, there's an understanding here that this is a diversion strategy uh, that is designed to refocus a very immediate conversation about something that is happening to America in a matter of days. Uh, you know, look, structural questions are very important to me. I think they amount to a generational project, not just in terms of the court, but uh, you know, gerrymandering, money in politics, the, the electoral college. There are a lot of questions that it will be the work of our generation to address and address them as quickly as possible and address them uh, in as bipartisan a fashion as possible. Uh, but uh, I think that right now there's clearly an appetite to talk about anything but the fact that healthcare is on the line in a matter of days and the fact that as we speak, we are living through one of the top mass casualty events in US history. Uh, and there's still no indication that, that uh, they're gonna be able to get us on top of it, which is why they'd love for us to talk about literally anything else. One of the reasons that based on my own report, I'm, I'm told they're not answering is they don't wanna to seem too far out there on the court issue at this fragile moment, as you've described politically in terms of American democracy. And they also don't wanna alienate members of the left wing of the Democratic Party who are interested in this issue and seeing a more uh, a, a firm stance on it publicly. So this brings up the question about what will a President Biden do if he wins in terms of working with the left wing of the Democratic Party? How will he keep all sides of the party happy? Well, one of the things you're seeing in the campaign is also something I expect we'll see in his presidency, which is a lot of interest in unity. Uh, look, we've had a president who has been so focused on dividing America. And Joe Biden, I think, gets up in the morning thinking about how to bring Americans together. But what I also appreciate about him is while he does that, he doesn't do it by just trying to shoot the middle all the time. Uh, he recognizes that often the pragmatic solution will also be an imaginative or bold solution. I mean, you look at what uh, this campaign is proposing in terms of uh, getting the cost of childcare under control, uh, in terms of making sure that the wealthy and corporations pay their fair share, uh, in terms of a, a really ambitious effort to build on the Affordable Care Act and make sure everybody's got healthcare. Uh, the, the level of investment and innovation uh, that uh, he wants to bring to the climate challenge. And this is big, big stuff, but I think he will always try to fashion these big initiatives in ways that could actually have a unifying rather than a divisive effect on the American people. You see that in the strategy of the campaign. You're going to see that in this presidency. What was it like working with Senator Harris on debate prep and playing the role of Vice President Pence? Uh, well, I, I really, um, uh, you know, I was, I was honored to be part of debate prep. It was uh, uh, interesting for me, obviously, to 
uh, try to spend a lot of time kind of inhabiting the uh, the, the mind of somebody I, I know well, but, but disagree with deeply on so many things. Uh, and I was also just, you know, trying to get her ready for, for the style because he has a very smooth way of sometimes delivering uh, something pretty outrageous. Uh, and it helped kind of, you know, get the eyebrows going and, you know, Robert, I, I truly do believe that this president is poised to go down in history as the greatest leader that America has ever produced. And, and, and you get this and it's so smooth, uh, even while you're being interrupted or while something that's outright false is being said, uh, th that it almost gets by. And I wanted to make sure kind of strategically she was ready for that as well as just uh, discussing the substance of what they were likely to say or, or to claim. Um, Mayor, the biggest, Mayor, you know, as somebody- Mayor, wait one second. I want to, you just gave us a little glimpse of how you work with Senator Harris on debate prep. I called around Buttigieg world, shall we say, in recent days ahead of this conversation. And I said, well, what should, what, what's going on? What's, what's the big issue? And the thing I kept hearing was you have to ask Mayor Buttigieg about his impression of Vice President Pence. You, you did a, something for about 10 seconds there. Can you really show us and channel how <laughs> you handled the role, as you called it, inhabiting the role of Vice President Pence? Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> You know, I couldn't be prouder to be serving at the side of an American presidency who has acted to uh, uh, unleash free and fair trade, to bring back a, an American energy renaissance. And I got to tell you that this radical left agenda would stop that economic renaissance in its tracks. Uh, this president has uh, acted decisively, provided that, that broad-shouldered leadership that we know the American people are looking for. And, and that is why I would be proud to serve at his side for four more years. You might have a future in Hollywood, not for me to say, but that's, uh, I've covered Vice President Pence, that's pretty good. That's uh, pretty um, good impressive. Not gonna be quitting the day job, but uh, you know, wanted to do what I could, because a lot of it is you know, uh, uh, the style stuff. I mean, he, he's a deceptively effective debater because he can so kind of smoothly do that. But I will say the other thing, you know, I felt like I understood uh, uh, what to expect from debates after participating in, in 10 presidential debates uh, during the course of the, uh, uh, of the primaries. But uh, I also was able to see in a, in a different and more direct way, uh, just how important and how impressive it was uh, that Kamala Harris is the first black woman in this position was really carrying the weight of history and, uh, and constrained in a lot of ways that uh, she never complained about uh, and never allowed to, to tie her up. But the, you know, many times there'd be uh, an angle or an approach or a, or, a, or a jab even that would come to mind for me. And then I realized I couldn't even propose it just because of some of the gender and, and racial dynamics that, that constrained uh, a, a woman of color who was the first uh, uh, to, to be in that position. It's one of the reasons I'm uh, I'm so uh, impressed and, and so proud about uh, her performance, her winning performance that night. What do you think she had to hold back? Well, you know, for one thing, uh, uh, you saw the, pres uh, the vice president just running over people, right? Interrupting them, interrupting the moderator, disregarding the time limits, interrupting Senator Harris. And there's always a little bit of a strategic game about uh, how to go about interrupting. But uh, a, a woman running for office uh, faces the, this constraint where if you're 
uh, too aggressive, they'll say you're not likable. If, if you're not assertive, they'll, they'll say that uh, you're weak. Uh, if, you, uh, if you're firm, that's, that's good, but not if you're too firm because firm, you gotta be warm. I mean, I mean, all of these constraints that are kind of unwritten, but when you game it out or you try, you, you can feel in a different way. Um, just how many expectations uh, exist here, and uh, you know the 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 things that are expected of, of candidates who are women who are told to do this 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 and this, and and by the way, be authentic is uh, again you know it's one thing to kind of be conscious of it or, or see it around you, uh, but it's another when you really feel like you're you're, you're part of the team uh, getting a candidate ready uh, to uh, to be so attuned to to the ways in which they have to navigate around it, and 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 she did, and I I think in doing that. And successfully uh, uh, debating the vice president uh, also just opened up uh, a, a new level of, of uh, hopefully political possibility for a lot of young kids watching that debate, uh, looking at their own future. Do you anticipate a role in the Biden administration should that administration uh, happen? I don't know. Uh, I will definitely have a role supporting uh, this administration's vision, and uh, if that's uh, from the inside, I would love a chance to return to public service. If that's from the outside, uh, I will do everything that I can in, in whatever capacity I, I find myself in. What I know is that, you know, the, the decade ahead of us is going to be the, I think, deciding decade for the American project. Uh, the, the 21st century is going to basically depend, in my view, on how the next few years go. And so I, I want to do everything that I can. And I think so much depends on how uh, people in government, but also in civil society, are part of this effort. To, to imagine a better future that, that has a greater sense of belonging. And, and, and as the vice president likes to say, uh, that, that tends to the soul of the nation because the soul of the nation is hurting. Uh, but we can, we can do some healing here too. I know that private conversations are private conversations, but can you at least let us know if Vice President Biden has asked you to prepare to serve in some way? Well, the, the good news is uh, there's no difference between private conversations and, and what he said in public. He's, he's been very gracious uh, about uh, uh, about my campaign, about the idea of, uh, uh, of me having a, uh, you know, a, uh, something to offer. Um, but no, there hasn't been any kind of uh, uh, chess game or, or, or horse trading or anything like that. Or, or an offer. One other thing, Mayor Buttigieg, in, in Indiana, there's a Senate race in 2022, Senator Todd Young up for re-election. Are you considering that at all? I don't know. When you come off something like a presidential campaign, uh, you're, uh, uh, you're kind of ready to uh, lay campaigning aside for a while. Uh, you never want to say never, but it's, it's really not something I'm planning for right now. Do you think the Indiana Democratic Party can come back statewide at some point in the near future? You know, one thing I believe passionately is there's no such thing as a red state forever. And uh, I was in Indiana when uh, uh, our state voted uh, for President Obama. It was the first time, uh, I think, since LBJ uh, that we had gone blue. Uh, we're seeing states right now on the map. Uh, North Carolina, Texas is in play. Uh, it, it's incredible what's happening out there. And so, you know, the coalition is shifting. Indiana is a very interesting state that's got communities everywhere from uh, the southern river counties that are very much southern along the Kentucky border to a place like Gary that's uh, near to Chicago uh, and, and built on, on just completely different terms than uh, so many of the rural communities. That's part of what makes Indiana so interesting. Uh, and of course, as an Indiana Democrat, I, I very much uh, look forward to continued gains for the party. But, uh, uh, you know, there's also just so much, as, as uh, the late Governor Kernan uh, told me, 
uh, the first time I asked him for advice on running for office, he, he said, so much in politics is outside of your control. And we know that there are going to be a lot of surprises and, and a lot of changes in the political landscape in the years to come. Mayor Buttigieg, congratulations on the book, Trust, America's Best Chance. It's a good read. And we appreciate your time here this morning. Thank you. Great being with you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.